Hey, Carl here. Let's build a complete server-side Blazor app together, online. Sign up for one of my seven-hour Blazor workshops, Friday, January 3rd, or Monday, February 24th. We'll build a complete .NET Core 3 Blazor progressive web app using generic components, API controllers, authentication and authorization, JavaScript interop, and SignalR for real-time collaboration. And if you can't make the date, just register for the video and materials only. You'll instantly get an email with links to download the materials and a screen video made from a previous workshop. Check it out at blazor.appvnext.com. That's B-L-A-Z-O-R dot A-P-P-V-N-E-X-T dot com. This episode of .NET Rocks is sponsored by Datadog a cloud-scale monitoring platform, Datadog automatically correlates logs and traces at the level of individual requests, allowing you to quickly troubleshoot your .NET applications. Plus, the service map automatically plots the flow of requests across your application architecture so you can understand dependencies and investigate bottlenecks. Visit datadoghq.com slash .NET rocks to try these features in your .NET environment with a free 14-day trial of Datadog and receive a free Datadog t-shirt. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And this is uh, the last show we are recording from .NET Developer Days in Warsaw, Poland. And in this boxy little room that uh, kind of sounds like a bathroom. Fun. Hey. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lots of ping in there. Lots of ping yeah. in there. Yeah. Not the studios that we're used to no, recording in. But it's there are worse. Yeah. There are worse than this. Adam Fermanek is here, and before we talk to him, we have this little matter of better know a framework. Roll that crazy music. Awesome. Now, normally, I wouldn't just point out a product on Amazon. Okay. But the reason why this product stood out to me is because of the feature set and the price mm -hmm. and the popularity, but... It's the WiseCam. Oh, it, yeah. I have one. Yeah. It's a 1080p HD indoor wireless smart home camera with night vision, two-way audio, person detection, uh, Alexa and Google Assistant integration. None of that is impressive. It's no, normal. The, but the person detection, that yeah. is something that used to only exist like in Connect. Yeah. You know? There's a few cams out there that can do that now. But I, the, the 25 bucks. That's the impressive part. Now you've gotten, you hit the line. Yeah. Because you can get the same thing out of a Nest Cam for 200 For bucks. 200 bucks. Exactly. But $25. Yeah. It is hard to argue with that. This thing, I also saw that this thing detects uh, carbon monoxide. What? Yeah. It can work as a smoke detector or something. That seems strange. It is strange. Yeah. I'm not that sure. That seems unlikely. Well, that's what I read. So. Okay. You can check it out on your own on Amazon. But yeah, 26 bucks if you have Prime. And it seems like that's too good to be true. But you have one. I have one and it was like $20. Yeah. Right. I ordered direct from Wise. And uh, and yeah, I um, mean, I have Nest Cams. I have Wise Cams. I have a few others too. I mean, I yeah. play with these different things. Anyway, the feature set for price is pretty impressive. It's, so that's yeah, why untouchable, really. Yeah. That's all I got. Uh, who's talking to us today, Mr. Campbell? Grabbed a comment off a show 1559, the one we did with one Dustin Metzger back in July of 2018. We were talking about .NET Core in action, which actually included a lot of conversation around debugging and things, right? So I thought it might be relevant to our conversation today. This particular comment comes from Arun Kumar, who was talking about some of the debugging work we were doing. And he says, if memory serves me right, strike.dll, which we talked about on the show, mm. was part of the CDB debugger, which in these days is shipped as part of the Windows SDK. Strike DLL was a command extension to the built-in CDB commands. I think SOS, which was son of strike, good name, <laughs> yeah. uh, was created as part of the WinDBG or WinDebug uh, toolset, which has Windows interfaces for debugging. Similar to Strike D DLL, SOS DLL provides commands extensions to WinDebug. The built-in commands start with a dot, as in dot load by, and the extended commands start with a bang, as in bang do for do for dump object. 
the .NET team created their own SOS DLL, which you can load into WinDebug if you want to debug CLR applications. So for the SOS DLL, the .NET team ships with their command line to dump the GC, walk the heap, and so on. These are the learnings that I got from working at Microsoft. Hmm. Which, yeah, you know, I just looking at lists is like, this is why we you know, can't have nice things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, walking the, walking a, a, a crashed heap in, in .NET is just not a trivial problem. But, you know, it's, yeah. it is interesting to look at how debugging tools continue to advance. Uh, so, Arun, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin and he's at Rich Campbell. You know, if you send us a tweet, uh, we will detect that a person actually wrote that. Nice. For That's 25 right. bucks. We have tweet person detection. Yes. <laughs> we can tell the difference between person and non-person tweets. I did not know. I'm so excited. <laughs> All right. Well, let's bring on Adam Furmanek. He has been working as a .NET developer since 2012. He currently works with Scala, Spark, and Machine Learning for Amazon. Um, Adam's always interested in digging deeper, exploring machine code, and going through implementation details to better understand internals of the technologies he uses every day. In his spare time, he likes to play ping pong, watch Woody Allen movies, and blog stuff at blog.adamformanek.pl. Welcome to the show, Adam. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No, I'm awesome. It's, I'm fascinated by this topic me of too. De debugging memory leaks in .NET. I can't remember the last time I had a memory leak yeah, in .NET. Yeah, .NET doesn't leak memory, so this is a very short talk. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Who told you that, yeah, actually? It's just easy. You see sharp and okay. Yeah, last time I remember leaking memory from a .NET code, I was p-invoking to a com object. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's possible. Am I incorrect, Adam? Is there other ways to have memory leaks? Well, I cannot tell for sure whether your application leaks memory or not, but uh, from my experience, I spotted quite a few of them which actually leaked some things which I had to debug. So I could argue with your statement okay. just a bit. So, but the definition of a memory leak is you have allocated your application or your program has allocated memory without deallocating and then, and then abandoning it. So it's no longer available, but it's still taking up space. Yeah, that is true. Uh, but if we talk, we are talking about C Sharp, actually, there is quite a big part of memory leaks, which are still accessible, hmm. but we actually do not release them because like we have a bug. I'm talking here about mostly like event handlers or some lambdas attached to handlers. Oh, okay. And in that case, this is still, still can be considered a memory leak because it keeps the graph of the object in memory, right. even though technically we could get those objects and remove them, release them, oh, or I nullify see. them if needed. So you add a handler without removing the handler. That is one of the yeah, examples. So memory stays consumed, and if you run this app for long enough, it could just keep adding those. Like, you could yeah. run a machine out of memory. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Because, I mean, we talk about the strength, the sort of enterprise strength of .NET is being able to run it on a server for as long as the server will run, and, and it doesn't get into that state. But I mm -hmm. guess we've gotten to a place now with enough sophistication that we're back to the risks of leaking memory. What about disposable objects not being disposed of? Well, as far as I know, there is nothing in the contract of like disposable that we should or we must dispose objects. However, this is pretty useful because like if we think about garbage collection as an emulation of infinite memory, then mm -hmm. why ever bother like disposing or releasing the objects right. at all? Like memory is infinite. Let's just use it. Right. However, if we if we want our applications to work reliably, probably it's a better idea to keep disposing them. And here we probably run into questions like what should be disposed or what should not because even though there is this idisposable interface some objects or some classes actually even though they implement it there is no need for disposing them right. sure if, they, if as soon as the 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 object goes out of context it should just be the disposed, right so this gets back to richard's you know the last time i had a memory leak was when i was using com interop and you, any any time you have unmanaged resources, calm or not, you have the potential risk. to... Yeah, you have a risk. So if you have an object and you're not implementing a disposable, you don't have a finalizer, and you just keep newing up these objects that aren't managed, 
Yeah, you, then I can see. Yeah, you mentioned finalizers. Those are actually pretty interesting because, like I said, we should consider garbage collection as emulation on infinite memory. Yeah. So mm. we generally should not rely on finalizers because they should never be run. Like, why bother with releasing memory with this approach? Mm -hmm. yeah. However, still, they are pretty useful. But depending on the technology, for instance, like Java, for instance, is moving out of using finalizers. Mm. And even though it's, uh, it's it supports like some more types of references you can even have a reference which will notify you when the object got actually released and you get an even handler for that kind of mm. uh, then like the general attitude is don't do this because if you take care of managing memory this way you are probably doing something maybe not wrong but definitely uncommon hmm definitely uh, uh inefficient most of the times yeah. yes yeah i'm just trying to figure out if it'll actually do any harm with taking care of yeah, doing, using finalizers uh, we may do a harm uh, if we write them incorrectly mm -hmm. that's super easy actually to break the .NET because finalizers were run on like a single thread right. so if you run into like infinite loop then you are probably you get an effect which you do not expect right. because the whole thread is now blocked but they're called on a low priority background thread aren't they they are but then if one object is being released and or is currently being cleaned up but mm -hmm. you block the thread then none of the other objects will get released yeah, so you right. Including ones where you have an explicitly called finalizers? Uh, if you, yeah, because it's all about the memory. If you do call right. the finalizer explicitly from your code, I don't even actually think this is possible without going to yeah, reflection. I don't think so. Right. Because it's probably protected virtual. Uh, but if you did a GC collect, for example, then you yeah. could. Yeah. But in GC, it works in a way that whenever GC detects an object which needs to be finalized, it puts it on a separate queue, which right. is like objects to be cleaned up later. Yeah. So if this thread cleaning up this queue got stuck, then nothing else will be released. Well, I haven't talked about this stuff since 2002. Seriously, yeah. it feels like it's been that long. It was only the first couple of years of .NET where we really debated its ability to manage memory for us, yeah. right? And remember there was a period there where we thought, oh, you can write your own garbage collector, you know? It's I just, remember Chris we were, Sells wanted to bring back reference counting. Yes, well, that? he always fought for that because he was a calm guy. He was a calm right? guy. And calm guy's reference counted. But eventually he, he was like, okay, I trust <laughs> it. Well, and more saliently, it's like, here we are, you know, 15, 16, 17 years on. Right. And none of us are dying. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, this is, remember how much pain we were in in the late 90s with VB, you know, com objects apartment threaded and leaking memory where, you know, I remember scheduling machine processes to be restarted on a routine basis. Look, even the early days of .NET, IIS had stuff built in to automatically recycle ASP.NET applications yeah. on a schedule Default. just because we didn't we didn't sometimes have control over the default the code. 21 hours. I don't know why I remember that. 29, I believe. Or was it 29 hours? 29 prime number, which wasn't colliding with other prime numbers. Yes. In the wow. And, Something like and that. So it allowed, that is cool. And it, and it, and he, you know, like you th I remember I did this as a talk and I mentioned the 29 hour thing. I think it's the stupidest thing ever. Like, why is it always slipping forward? And then, you know, you'd never say that at a Microsoft show because then the guy who set that specification came and told me why. <laughs> and, and his point was, if you call tech support and you have a bizarre behavior happening around an IIS, IIS that slips ahead five hours each day, you know it's the worker process recycle. Yeah. Right? It's just, wow. it, it's a low, it's the way to identify reduced cost of tech support, which is actually turns out the best cool. set of default values ever is ones that are easy to support. Mm. But, wow. Yeah. Good point. Of course, and it was in minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> As all the correct values in computer science, you need to specify them with right units. <laughs> so I, I doubt that a lot of people are using com interop anymore, but certainly p invoke, you know, possibly, mm -hmm. especially when going across libraries and across languages. Mm -hmm. Is that um, where you see a majority of memory leaks these days? From my experience now, the, ex the, the, the memory leaks I was debugging mostly were around the things which we actually wanted to allocate but mm. forgot to release and because we didn't necessarily understand the internals of the, mm. of the .NET platform or sometimes we were interoperating with something which was using some ported technology like something like Java running on IKVM mm. or the recent memory leak like I can recall was debugging actually WCF application which was holding a cache and not releasing it oh. in a timely manner <laughs> <laughs> or technically not at all and, and how are you detecting this as a leak 
Like, yeah, you, you, are you actually seeing excess memory consumed, like over time? Yeah, that's probably yeah, the that first thing we notice. Either either memory increasing, or we notice a CPU spikes because CPU spikes are pretty often related to memory increased memory because garbage collector needs to do a lot more work, working to, harder as memory yeah, gets yeah, restricted. Yeah, and then if you notice that hey, memory is going up and not necessarily going down, it's time when we start the the whole fun and we try figuring out whether it is a memory leak or maybe we just are pretty good at emulating infinite memory in our machines <laughs> <laughs> because you would also think hey just run 64 bit you know throw enough memory at it yeah that is true especially when we right now in like big data world like one might ask why do we need those fancy garbage collectors which do not release memory at all for mm-hmm. instance there is a garbage collector in java called zero gc i believe which doesn't release memory at all mm. but the thing is if we are running something on like machine which has 250 gigabytes of RAM. Right, sure. Maybe just it's better to just run the job and terminate the process. Don't waste time on, on cleaning on, up. On cleaning up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Drop all the memory. I remember once, uh, you know, 64 bit operating systems took over and we had like all gobs and gobs of RAM, like all of this sort of memory leak, garbage collection stuff, like the conversation on our show anyway, just kind of dropped, you know, because most people just. Oh, we have more memory than we know what to do with. It's not so critical anymore. Yeah. But generally speaking, like certainly in the web world, the worker processor space is never bigger than two gigs. Yeah. You can have multiple ones, but you can, it's, it's not like I have 64 gigs of RAM. I just have to stop thinking about this. Right. I'm still working these two gig chunks. That yeah. is true. So it's still worth like taking a look what we allocate and how often or even if we release the memory. But yeah. it was, it was smaller when we had. Only four gigs to work with. Well, yeah, if you're working Total. 32 bit, four gigs with the with the video memory cutout and so forth, like you couldn't get a two gig working space. No. It was impossible. I don't know what it was by default, but I think I, the most I could ever squeeze out of it was like 800 megs. Yeah, that, that was right. Remember, I spent a long time making IIS servers circle the drain, yeah. like right on the edge <laughs> of tipping over to give it time. Like that, that went strangely. Yeah. That was the job. Let's stress IIS right to the limit and see can our appliance give it more headroom. But, yeah. you know, one of the simplest things ever did to improve the performance of an application was f- flip it to 64-bit, throw four more gigs of RAM, and, and make sure we actually had a two-gig working. It's always working the process. same approach. Just change your machine, upgrade it, and you are good to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Don't cheaper than actually fixing the software. Definitely. definitely. You know, a lot of the time. It, all it, We were still leaking memory. We just had more memory to leak. Sure. And not <laughs> to mention, most of the times, it was just faster than fixing the application. It was. Yeah. Well, the, the big thing that I brought, this was a particular project I was dealing with where they were they were forcing a restart like every 20 minutes like that's what pain that app ouch in. and so a lot of work was getting lost and when we went from the 800 meg worker space to the 2 gig it went from 20 minutes to like 4 hours amazing and enormous so, well, mm-hmm. it, I mean, the main thing was that people could now, get, we were losing a lot less work. So it was like, oh, we relieved the immediate pain. Like we fixed mm-hmm. that in a couple of days. Now you still have to hunt down the buck. Mm-hmm. You know what's leaking? So how do you hunt down .NET memory leaks like that? I, I don't know how to even go about that these days. Well, the way I typically approach it is like with debuggers. You just run WinDebug, you mm-hmm. take a memory down most of the times because probably when you have a memory leak, it's maybe hard for you to reproduce it on your div box. Absolutely. So generally what you may want to do is just take a memory dump of the production process and start analyzing it offline with mm-hmm. like a lot of time available, not necessarily under the pressure of time. Debugging the live production server and stopping a real live user requests. So you take the memory dump, you open it with the tool of your choice, probably WinDebugger or something similar. However, there are so many tools automating the job. Mm-hmm. And then you basically run the analysis of the heap. You take a look at what's there and you look for things which you find uh, a little bit troublesome. Now, can mere mortals look at that stuff and understand it? Can your average .NET developer understand a, a memory dump? I would say so. There are multiple uh, tools which do automated analysis for you, so it can at least tell you, hey, what's there in this application? But sometimes it's necessary to understand a little bit of low-level thingies to, to figure out, okay, maybe I do know there is this memory leak, but how do I actually kill that memory leak? Right. Where does it come from? Does the dump actually show you your objects? 
Are, you can can you relate them? You can find all your objects in the mm. dump. Uh, you can just list them by type or by size. So you mm. have a lot of methods for filtering them. Sometimes it's enough. Like when I was uh, one time, I was debugging memory leak in like entity framework. Mm. It was because we had a lot of traced entities which we were not releasing, and the cache was just keeping them. So whenever we just opened the memory dump, did hey give me all the objects? How many of them are based on the type? And just by looking at the very first line, we noticed, oh, it is entity framework because we are doing wrong job. Mm -hmm. So we just fixed it with one line of code. But sometimes you do get situation, okay, I can see a lot of objects, which is like what? Big strings or arrays of bytes. What the hell is this? I know (laughs) it is something I am using, but what is this like in real world, in human readable language? Yeah, what was the code I wrote that caused this? Yeah, or maybe what was actually the code I am using which caused this because it does not need to be my my code. It's often, yeah, and I, I imagine often not, right? Yeah, pretty we're, often it can be a framework library we are using. Or we're living in a land now where we have a lot more open source libraries we may be willing to use, and they have side effects we may not understand. So, so you're saying you were using the entity framework and you found a bug in your code using the entity framework yeah. or in the entity framework No, itself? it was back on my side, yeah. the way I used entity framework. Uh, so fix was pretty simple because I could just change my code. So you said they were tracked, they were untracked? Is that how it was We were happening? tracking a lot of objects, which yeah. we did not, uh, we need, didn't need to use. And more, but we were not releasing them in a timely manner, so the whole server was basically slowing down. So the very first minute we noticed what is happening, like by the type of the object which was kept, we noticed that, hey, one million of these instances of this type is probably not something we are actually doing. (laughs) But if you grab grab an entity from the context and the context goes away and you still have that entity, it's not tracked anymore, right? So you'd have to have that context open and now it comes to the question how do you actually manage context in entity yeah. framework i don't actually recall all the details yeah. because now i'm on a java world so things are different there but i recall reading quite a lot of articles whether the entity framework context should be like a singleton or transient yeah. should i inject it with every single request or reuse it or maybe keep it in static field so depending which approach you go you may get different behavior right, yeah so from what i understand it's best to have short-lived contexts because as long as that context is open, those those entities are being tracked, which is fine if you want that sometimes. But it can get really dicey if, uh, you know, it's kind of like having a whole nother heap to worry about. Now, the question is whether you actually would like to have this cache provided by Entity Framework mm. context or not. Mm. Because if you would like to utilize this cache a little more, maybe it's worth keeping the context for a little longer. It's interesting. It's always the question of trade-offs. What would you like to do? Sure. Uh, which thing is like better for you depending on the application you Which run? pain would you prefer? No, that is so true. <laughs> I'm not saying there is a perfect answer to anything. It's just you know, <laughs> do you know where you're suffering? Yeah. What that suffering actually looks like. What are some of the other uh, situations you've run up against that we might not be thinking about? As .NET developers, we should be checking. Uh, generally, I am very concerned about all the caches we use because mm. depending on mm. what provides you this cache, it may be some external library, it may be some cache like actually running on different machine. Depending on how we utilize it, we may get run into memory leaks or not because let's face it, some caches, so libraries, so frameworks are a bit buggy. Mm. So it's the, now the question is, when do you run into seeing this bug? Uh, so like the thing I was debugging with WCF was something which was actually already fixed. I believe it was 2017 or 2016. Yeah. So the cache of WCF was like keeping the objects and not releasing them. Okay. But because we were running this as a legacy application in .NET Framework 4.0, there was the property to clean up the cache was not exposed to us, to the users. It was protected or something like this. Starting .NET 4.5, I believe it was changed. So now the problem would be gone pretty easily. Just get the cache, clean it up. But what do you do in .NET 4.0? You'll probably start using some dirty hacks with reflection of yeah, other right. things. And well, you know, if you hear a teammate say, oh, we're using a cache that I wrote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you should just slap that person and... Always, Use Redis always. or something. Yeah, and now the question is, okay, there is this cache. Most of the time it's probably super useful, but after some time, well, depending on the policy of the cache, you may run into troubles when you it, don't release it. If you think about it, it's in the best interest of a cache to stay open and to keep that stuff around as long as possible. As long as you have memory. And it's in your yeah. best interest as a software developer 
to not do that, right? That is so true. <laughs> so here we have colli- collision of interest. That's right. I got to a place doing so with caching because by by in our nature as developers, we want all cache expiries to be logical. Yeah. Right. Only when this data is wrong, expire it. Right. And as I did it more and more and more, I stopped doing that. I started making all the caches time-based expiries. Because it was only a way, A, you were sure it was going to be cleaned up. Yeah. And B, you no longer had these crazy synchronizers trying to figure out when a cache should expire or not yeah, expire. Yeah. That is true. And and generally speaking, we were dealing with software that was moving at velocity, you know, where it was t- double and triple digit transactions per second. Having a cache that lasted a second is enough. Made a huge difference. Yeah, Steve As, Smith proved that to us. Yeah. And the, and the big trick was to build a new cache without destroying the old one so the new cache item was available to swap to before you destroyed the old one so that no hits were ever... The, the big thing is don't punish the customer for refreshing your cache. Yeah. Right? That you're refreshing the cache independently of the customer. But just even if you replace the cache every second... That means you have one database call per second. One database call per second, two cache objects, one that's, be, one that's be currently being used and one that's being built... Yeah. Right. And you're just destroying the old one once you swap to it, and then a second later making it again. Right. And and here you are handling a couple of hundred transactions a second mm. and one database call person. Yeah. At least on the fetch side, right? Yeah. yeah. Still writing like mad. Yeah. But it's not sexy, but boy, it was reliable. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's funny how I could maybe just get old enough and get kicked enough that you're like, I don't <laughs> want the sexy solutions anymore. I don't want clever expiration anymore. I just mm. want it to work. Right. I completely agree here. Generally, with every cache, my personal ep- opinion is there always should be a way to forcefully clean it up somehow. Yes. No matter whether it's a desktop application or software cache or whatever else, there should be just a button. Hey, kill this cache yeah. for me because I don't trust it. Yeah, yeah. big because red button on the desktop. Because you Close. do have that button on every computer. You just call it the power button. Yeah. <laughs> which is a way to clean up cache. It's very reliable. Yeah, that's actually tricky because a lot of software the applications they just persist the cache and right. files you then restart so you the application the machine, like, oh i already got a cache yeah. object here <laughs> <laughs> what's the point <laughs> yeah yeah. Oh, guess caches are just like one situation. The other thing is also related to what we use, like frameworks or libraries. For instance, there was this well-known bug or a feature, depending how we define it, of XML libraries in .NET, wherever you were trying to create a new XML serializer, the serializer, mm-hmm. a new type was created. Yeah. So after some time, your app domain was basically exploding with the number of types. And for instance, debugging this is uh, pretty interesting because, okay, you typically when we do analyze memory dumps, we generally look for objects. So this can be misleading because it was not objects consuming the memory, mm. but types consuming the memory. Mm. So unless you figured out that, hey, maybe there is something else in my application, which <laughs> I don't necessarily see with the comments I'm running, then you could miss that, hey, memory is con- consumed by something but I have no idea what's that. Right, right. Yeah, so generally, but if we extrapolate on this a bit more, then we realize it's not only .NET memory, it's also native memory, memory related to things like pinvoke or some native libraries we just sure. call, or if we do some interrupts with different technologies or we, if we run C++ loading .NET manually. There's so much stuff around that actually figuring out what is leaking is probably the first step and the most important one. Sure. Yeah, and not easy to do because it for sure doesn't leak all the time. You've got to get to a place where you can recreate the leak state yeah that does definitely makes sense that's why i mentioned you probably don't want to block your production server you just want (laughs) to grab the memory dump and start figuring out hey it happened i know it happened yeah at least i believe it happened (laughs) increase this process consuming more and more memory over time exactly let's debug this in this way this also can differ between like machines or between you know environments on dev desktop or depending on the windows version or the dotnet version you Mm -hmm. may not be able to reproduce the problem at all sure. this is more towards like probably multi-threading scenarios because mm-hmm. then it depends highly but even with like one uh, one box and memory you also need to install patches operating system patches dotnet patches whatever else just a different version like in may, main or number may make a significant major difference in the behavior right. of the application you also i'm i'm coming up from a web dev perspective where uh, the amount of memory the app consumes when it's first started up and everything is instantiated is not 
a fair amount of memory that you actually have to run an app for some time, get through first and second generation gen uh, garbage collection before you really get a sense of what a healthy amount of memory. This app should consume for this version roughly this much. But I mean, it, it depends on the load on the site. But when I was building load tests and things for this stuff, we would actually have a whole period uh, of testing uh, of, of the test that wasn't part of the load test, but rather it was part of maturing memory. That mm -hmm. actually you would do a bunch of transaction things. So you'd go through the stuff that would get the memory blocks where it's gone through a couple of garbage collections. Now you have a sense of this is what mainstream operating state of the app is. Now we can start actual testing. Yeah, that is typical approach as replay your production traffic for some time and see how the application behaves. Right. It can be a bit misleading though. I recall we had a situation that we were actually running load tests on a fleet for like two hours. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to stress the memory. We just wanted to check the performance but right. we noticed when we switched from doing like a load test just for the performance checks we started doing comparison tests between new version of application and old version uh, to make sure that we handle those requests exactly the same way it happened that something like one percent of the requests were different now what was happening under the hood because we were running the test for so long one of the nodes or actually random node was consuming so much of a memory that the operating system was killing that, that process <laughs> and restarting it. Wow. So while it was handling the request well, you get something like 500 or generally request dropped. Right. So that was the difference. Something you probably don't notice when you measure or check the metrics for average memory usage because, you know, on average operating system kills those things. It's pretty good at doing that. Sure. So yeah. you don't notice there is a memory leaking over time. It's the danger of averages, right? Mm. That you, is so you, true. You really do want to explore the extremes and the, and the deviation levels as well. Uh, I think we've got to pause just for a moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl and Richard here. We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC London will be January 27th through the 31st. Go to ndc-london.com to register. We're going to be recording some episodes there. Come see us in the fishbowl. NDC Security Oslo is January 22nd through the 24th. Early bird discount for NDC Security Oslo is December 2nd. Go to ndc-security.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Here I am. And that's Adam. Now I have to get to say your last Furmanek. name. Furmanek. 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 And we're talking about debugging memory leaks in .NET. And then it turns out they're not mythical. No. They're just not the memory leaks we remember from the old days. They're and they're certainly ones. not like JavaScript memory leaks, which happen all the time. Yeah, we call that Chrome. Global variables. <laughs> well, Chrome, <laughs> Firefox, doesn't matter. Did I say that out loud? Okay, I feel bad now. <laughs> I was trying to save you from that one. But, okay, uh, there's no saving me no. at this point. But I mean, certainly when you think about things like caches and so forth, they run outside of the context of the normal cleanup, right? They're sitting as sort of global objects. Yeah. I would also think some of the new features like span of T risk memory leaks, don't you think? Uh, generally, it is a bit risky because maybe not span, but the new C-sharp language gives us features like with those references pointing to the parts of the object directly straight into the middle of the object. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it may not be risky in the sense that we are doing something wrong, but those references are actually a bit more uh, costly for the for the garbage collector to mm -hmm. handle and to track. Mm -hmm. So if we keep using them in like a lot, we may actually slow down the garbage collection mechanism significantly, which in turn may cause some yeah. problems with memory management. Problems. Yeah. CPU spikes. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And thread blocking, right? right. I mean, we get used to, GCs happen all the time, but they happen so quickly we just don't even notice them. Hey, let's talk about unsafe mode in C-sharp. That's um, a wow. powerful keyword. <laughs> powerful keyword. First of all, I'm not so sure I want to run any code unsafely, but... <laughs> I'm afraid you do this all the time. But we do it all the time, and why? And and what are we up against when we do uh, that? Well, unsafe code is unsafe by definition. However, this does not mean that we don't want to use it, because at some point, we generally need to have the performance back. It's very nice to have this high level of abstraction of C-sharp language and everything like that. However, there is still things going on on bare metal. There is machine code. There are yeah. things of operating mm. system which are running over there. So what we need to do sometimes is generally we need to fight for the performance. Unsafe keyword gives us the ability to directly 
put our hands on every single byte of memory and do the tricks which we probably don't want to do daily however it's nice when we have them wrapped in the library which is maintained supported and right. gives us the performance improvements mm-hmm. I, i'm thinking of n audio which is you know a tool that i've used to do audio Forever, manipulation yeah. and they have there's a great asio which is low level audio and in order to use that you have to go unsafe because you're directly writing to buffers that go right into the hardware pretty much and so the, in order to get that low latency as you say the performance back you have to go unsafe but it, what you know how can we abuse that and those turn into memory leaks how can we abuse that is like a question on its own. With sure. unsafe, if you can put your hands on memory, you can do whatever you like. You can yeah. patch .NET Framework or .NET Core on it's the your go. Foot. <laughs> yes, sometimes I had to do this. Yeah, I, I admit. Uh, so you can modify methods on the fly. You can make sealed methods unsealed or do uh. any other tricks. You can hack new keyword to take control of memory allocation. So those are things you can definitely do. Don't most, do that. Most of the times you probably don't need no. that. That yeah. is so true. However, uh, with unsafe, because the thing is like when we write high-level code, what we probably want to do nowadays is immutable objects are so awesome. Yes. We would like to have them with no state. So it's easy to reason about that. We can have like travel back in time, mm. ability to restore or debug our applications easily. But the thing is, if we copy every single object, it is expensive. That's just a fact. So if we now start copying big objects like strings or arrays, it may harm our performance significantly so in that situations when we can direct access the object directly and modify it on the go it's when the unsafe keyword is useful and that's why i believe span and memory were introduced in mm-hmm, c sharp yeah. in .NET in general because hey we just need to do it at some point it's only the matter of doing it like in a very controlled environment and yeah. in a safe way this also imposes some problems because if you start reading the memory directly garbage collector cannot move this memory anymore right. you start pinning the objects which on its own may pose some significant issues so let's get back let's unwrap that for a minute i know what pinning is but some people probably don't that means you're saying this uh piece of memory this array whatever should not be collected by garbage collection. Is that or right? Or should not be moved in general. Because should be moved, that's yeah, right. That yeah. is spinning because what garbage collector does with mark sweep compact, it can compact the memory. So when you have holes, which we call fragmentation, garbage collector may decide at some point that, hey, let's just consolidate all the objects into like single block of memory. Right. So it in in practice consumes less of the memory. And it's the same as a disk defragmenter if you've been you know, down that road, except exactly. that's a memory defragmenter. Exactly, that's the thing. So because of that, garbage collector needs to have this ability to move the objects in memory and update all the pointers on the ref- all right. the references. So now when you start like p- getting the direct control of the object, accessing it directly yeah. via pointers or whatever else under the hood, you basically cannot move this object anymore or you cannot... I allow your code to to move this object without no without the platform supporting yeah, that yeah. because the platform needs to take control of all the references and make sure that hey all the pointers are updated. That's why unsafe keyword is generally unsafe because if <laughs> we get the pointer, well we don't ne- we never know how we use this pointer and whether we right. use it outside of .NET. So the GC doesn't know about this anymore. So that's why uh, we unless pin you objects. pin unless yeah. you pin the memory. If we pin the memory, then we are safe. Garbage collector will not move those objects we can yeah. safely pass those pointers to any unmanaged mm-hmm. code we would like however then it's a like a penalty because if we cannot consolidate the memory then we have fragmentation we consume more right. of it and also garbage collector needs to take care of like actually skipping those objects when handling them does right. it actually work for it to skip those objects does it, does it affect the availability of other memory I'm, I'm just contemplating whether or not you could like pin at the right time that it would have a minimal impact on the garbage collector. You probably can. However, the question is, how do you figure out yeah. it's the right time? Good luck. What can happen with garbage collector is when it's like splits the memory into chunks, into pages, it actually sometimes you need to promote the object or demote the object mm-hmm. because it is pinned. So you, it cannot be moved freely in the memory. So generally GC agrees, okay, I will go and waste this 
part of memory, like waste from my point of view, because right, I yeah. cannot take care of it uh, efficiently and move on to somewhere else, start allocating objects somewhere else. Right. So if you do hit the right time, then it's probably not the problem, but we never know how no. to hit the right I time. I think the best time to drop a pin chunk of memory in is right after garbage collection. <laughs> well, and the May best maybe thing to pin is like a, a small buffer that gets used over and over and over again, you know, for some hardware hmm. purpose. Generally, object pooling is one of approaches to how to handle the, the mm -hmm. memory a little more efficiently. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we would like to have a pool of objects, which ideally we, can, we hide from garbage collector or right. we just let GC know, hey try not touching those or right. at least if you need to touch them please do it quickly for instance <laughs> here this is the data oriented apl uh, application approach instead of like having a million of objects with 10 properties mm. let's just keep 10 arrays of objects each array representing properties of single of them right. so you have 10 arrays if GC needs to handle them to clean them up it can just take 10 objects realize okay nothing to do here I can move on yeah. so you still keep 1 million objects of objects obviously your access pattern is now a bit different but you have a big performance improvement yeah, sure. so object pool is different from array pool right yeah and also when i mentioned hiding objects from gc this is yet another spot when unsafe keyword may come to play when you get rid of like normal dotnet supported references and start going with raw pointers which mm. gc has no idea about then you can actually effectively hide the objects from gc something probably we should not be doing probably day -day, not but, but, but getting back to span as richard m mentioned span of t is completely safe and it is completely manageable and you get the benefits of using pointers. That's the whole point of span of T and memory yeah. of T. We right. would like to have performance of unsafe, but we want it to be safe. So yes. that's the point of those two new types. And just like, as I said, we would like to have this performance back at some point. The yeah. only question is how we do it safely and span of T and memory of T, they give them this, give us this ability. And also they are pretty nicely supported now by .NET because there are yeah. a lot of new APIs accepting spans yeah. so we can pass them around and we avoid copying objects from here to there but we still can uh, access them directly the way we could do with unsafe and pointers. Now I, I can't remember if you answered this question already but can we get memory leaks with span of T? Uh, I bet we do. Yeah, the same way as if we get a span of T and if we pin something and if we get a pointer or something and we forget about using it, then yeah, why not? Mm -hmm. It's the same pattern as everywhere. If we have, again, cache or handler or this object is handled here. The only difference with span, span is struct-based. So it generally should be stored on a stack. So we pr we cannot just hold it like that. But there is a memory of T. It's a structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So memory should support those situations. But then garbage collector should move them around. I would feel pretty safe. I cannot tell you for sure we yeah. won't have memory leak, but right. I would be, you know, a bit concerned as with everything. Sure. If you keep them in scope and manage them correctly, you're probably yeah. okay. Yeah, we just we I think it's easy to get lazy now and just not think about managing scope and things. Like we're used to most of our, you know, heap-based variables just come and go and there's, there's nothing to do. Yeah, that's the same point. If we get faster machine, why bother with those things? <laughs> <laughs> Works now. It was cheaper to just throw two more sticks of memory at that problem. Right. It's very, very interesting. So, I mean, we've only talked a little bit about the debugging side, but I guess it's a very case-by-case -case basis kind of problem. Yeah, definitely. People sometimes ask me, how, how do I learn how to debug those things? And while mm. I could recommend some books, for instance, Mario Heward Advanced.net Windows Debugging, they are pretty mm. good for learning how those things work under the hood. Uh, it generally requires a lot of knowledge of all the layers around. It's not right. that you go and learn about memory, because sometimes you just see CPU spikes, which are because of them memory. Mm -hmm, so we right. need to be able to tell, hey, this CPU spike is because of memory or it's not because of the memory. Right. So you need to learn about scheduling, about CPU and all those things. Then you go and when you realize there is some memory with P-Invoke being in the play, what do we do next? Well, we probably need to figure out how this P-Invoke technology works under the hood yeah. or maybe what other native things are What's there. What's actually going on there. Yeah, task schedulers, thread pools, object pools, everything around. So generally, it takes just a lot of time and a lot of experience uh, when seeing how those things work together yeah. how they interoperate and then only we can we can figure this out mm -hmm. it's always worth whenever and i highly recommend that whenever you do some debugging of memory dump or of memory leak just go to the internet and post blog about 
this thing, just write what you did. It right. might yeah. not be interesting for most of the world, but then one day some developer will be just Googling this thing and this is exactly what I was looking for. Yes. There are lots of Stack Overflow entries about memory leaks. Exactly. Time. So here I could recommend, for instance, Raymond Chan, the old new thing blog. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he yeah, sometimes yeah, right. posts about the blogs about those things, how he was debugging something, especially when he was getting like a user report that, hey, this thing is crashing. Mm -hmm. And then like you just see how he goes with debugger and runs the commands and is checking all the bytes here and there and tells you, hey, this is what I think happened. Right. It may not be directly applicable for your use case. Most of the times it mm -hmm. won't be useful mm -hmm. for you, but still you can see this mindset, how you do this, how you can tackle those problems. And what's more important, what other things you need to keep in mind when doing those, mm -hmm. because it's yeah. also not only about the C-sharp code, it's also about the architecture, operating system optimizations, compiler optimizations, mm. things around that, which you need to keep in mind, which you need to remember about when you do this memory dump debugging. So generally, it's very hard to learn those things. Mm. And it just takes time. Uh, I don't think anyone on this planet can tell that, hey, I do know how to handle memory leaks and how to debug them because there is always a new case which yeah. we do not expect. Sure. Yeah, no, it's, uh, if you make something idiot-proof, they'll make a better idiot, right? Like, <laughs> that is so true. Most of the time, that idiot is me. <laughs> I, I thought I was clever, then I was wrong. It's easier to go this direction <laughs> yeah. than the other one. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's just an interesting battle, and every one of them is going to be unique. So it's just it's fun to talk about this again. It's not something I thought much about for quite a yeah, while. Me either. But yeah, it is it is a an ongoing thing with mature software that runs for extended periods of time too. Yeah, and especially in microservices world, right? Mm -hmm. When those things are spinning up and spinning down all the time, uh, you know, it's it's hard to get in there and look and see what's actually going on in a container. Say, yeah. Yeah, and they also introduce a lot of more questions like, okay, I am running .NET, which is working perfectly fine on 64-bit machine with plenty of memory right. here and there. Yeah. But what do I do if I want to dockerize it, run it in right. a very small container? Mm -hmm. And what, do I have a memory leak? Or maybe can I cut down the memory consumed by the .NET sure. platform? Well, so, so you're running in Azure and you're paying for the size of your instance. Yep. Like you get really motivated. To yeah, so now it's very interesting to see how GC in .NET is actually supporting more and more of the things like we have we get new parameters to tune the gc to consume less memory just to support the containerized scenarios so sure. even though we always can tell that hey the world has just moved on and we have bigger machines we want to use those bigger machines to do more than mm -hmm. we were doing previously so it's still important to keep uh, in no, mind no i've always had my software expand to fill all available cpu cycles isn't that one of the laws of software development? I think so, yeah. yeah. Doesn't matter how much memory I put in the machine, my software always wants more. <laughs> the correct amount is you more. Just, always more. You just run a browser nowadays <laughs> and it works. Yeah. Chrome. <laughs> Chrome. Uh, but it's, what yeah. is it about Chrome that takes up so many instances and so much memory? Oh, yeah. Well, it's all of the uh, background things, right? It's all of the the, the notifiers. And, yeah. You know, the, all of that stuff. I remember the day when I first noticed that the browsers introduced this power save mode. Like, hey, what's going Why on here? Why got an opinion about that? It's like, you are not qualified. Yeah. I will tell you how much power we're going to save today. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, even I'm playing with the new version of Edge with the Chrome you mentioned, the mm -hmm. Canary edition. Mm -hmm. And these days, it's just like the longer you run that thing, the more memory it consumes. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, you have to shut them all down. Yeah. Do I you do. deal with much client-side memory leak stuff or is it just in the servers? Uh, no, client-side memory leaks are common as well, mm -hmm. especially when we focus on browsers and JavaScript code and mm -hmm. all those things. It's super easy to leak the memory over there. Uh, that's because like we do write inefficient code, so we need to handle them. It's actually very nice that once we are get, we get this mindset that to track the memory or to figure out how to track the memory met the memory dumps how to analyze them there are so many good tools for other scenarios as well for right. instance dev tools and browsers which mm -hmm. allow us to do the profiling the memory dumps all those things so those commons are not like 
only in the .NET ecosystem, it's common for everything. So it's good to know how to handle those things. Uh, like recently, I was actually doing a tracking a memory leak on the client side when I was hosting a browser in my .NET desktop application. Mm-hmm. I was hosting a Chrome engine. Nice. Uh, mm-hmm. So the thing is, after some time, like few hours, it was going painfully slow. Mm. So what was happening, it was keeping a connection with the server and receiving messages all the time. And because the messages could be duplicated because of like lost connection or, or something like this, the client-side JavaScript code was keeping the track of all the IDs it has seen. Wow. So you can imagine that after some time, the amount of messages was so enormous that this one single collection set of the IDs was getting bigger and bigger, and it had to be cleaned up after well, some point. Give yourself an mm-hmm. unstable connection of some kind, and boom, that'll go through the roof. It, you know, I imagine that we're going to have new problems in, in, introduced with client-side Blazor. Because now, you know, client-side Blazor has these global, uh, not global variables, but, you know, sort of heap-level variables as well as stack variables. And those are going to stick around in a spa for as long as you're using that app, yeah. right? That and is so, true. Like, generally, all the things we are running now are probably the same things we were running 30 years ago, only mm. in disguise. So <laughs> if we did have problems at that point of time, we'll have those problems they here the as well. rubber nose and mustache, you yeah. know, the Groucho face. <laughs> right. Exactly. This is like with going with uh, document databases or NoSQL databases. Right. We did this like three or four times already in the history mm-hmm. of computer science. It's a normal right. set of oscillations. Yeah. Right? Well, and we got to try that again. Maybe we'll be better this time. Exactly. Yeah. And even the NoSQL term evolved from not using SQL to not not only using SQL right. or so mm-hmm. doing things I, like that. I feel that. like we're getting a little more friendly around that. And yeah, sure. Starting to see some good ways to go about it. Sure. Um, so what else haven't we touched on memory leak wise that we might uh, think that everybody wants to hear about? Generally, it's always nice to talk about those memory leaks, mm-hmm. but it's never fun to debug those memory leaks. The fun comes right after you debug them and you nail the problem. I see it. Then when yeah. the fun begins, because yeah. now I know what to do. But like for days, it may be during the analyzing memory dumps that, hey, I have absolutely yeah. no clue what's <laughs> going on are, here. Are there any resources we can uh, go to to learn how to read those things? Like how did you learn how to read a memory Oh, dump? definitely. Uh, you can Google those are pretty easily like test for uh, demos about debugging that's for always the answer isn't it test for is <laughs> it's yeah. like an <laughs> elementary book for doing these things Mario Heward things I mentioned yeah. already yeah, generally plural site courses about that are interesting as well okay. also what you probably would like to do after some time just find all those blogs where people post about mm-hmm. uh, debugging memory dumps and just keep them handy somewhere mm-hmm. so when you hit this problem you know what to do mm-hmm. Or where to go look for for an answer. But as I mentioned previously, it's pretty hard to you. It's hard to get to the point when you can tell I know how to do it because there is always something new to learn, and sure. the software keeps changing every yep. time. So yeah. there's new libraries, new technologies, new approaches. New only problem is the same. A new puzzle every day. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Super fun to chat with you, Adam. Thanks so much for this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I hope this talk shed some light on the problems or challenges we may have with memory. Just paying attention to it again. Exactly. Like at the end of the day, it's super easy to tell that the machine may get bigger and faster, but it's always worth to keep in mind what we are allocating and how often. All right. Well, we won't keep you any longer. I know you got a session to talk (laughs) to go do right now. So. Thank you very much, Adam, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got
the FCC, yes, I'm a... Uh, 